I'm going to start out by reading this morning's text. Obviously, I'm in Romans 8, and I'm starting in verse 5, going through verse 11. And I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. So I'm in chapter 8, verse 5 through 11. I want to just take you on a little imaginative uh, trip. I want you to imagine yourself uh, being being in a situation where after years of doctor visits and hospital stays and heart procedures, your cardiologist tells you about your inevitable fatal heart attack. Now, I, this may hit more close to home than I, than I want it to, and I'm not trying to, there's, there's nobody I'm thinking of when I tell this story. It just seemed to, to make sense. And, but you're, you're in very poor health. Your heart is very battered. You've not treated yourself very well physically, and it's been showing for years, and the doctor's been telling you, you've had, you've had stents put in, you've had arteries cleared out, and uh, you're irritated, and you're upset after this doctor visit, and so you do what you normally would do after a situation like this. You go to uh, your favorite uh, burger joint and you get your usual two triple bacon cheeseburgers with a large chili cheese fries and a 60 ounce Coke, diet Coke. And you're really worried about your health, okay? And the, 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 but the pain in your chest, that tightness that you feel every once in a while, it's manageable. It's, you take medicine for that, you know, it kind of feels like an old friend. And you, you know, it's a bit normal and you, know, you can't imagine life without it because you can't remember life without it. That, you know what that kind of thing is? Uh, the doctor has told you for years that you take, need to take better care of yourself and you've ignored every piece of advice you've ever been given. And you recall the doctor's words at your last visit and he said, you're dying. It's just a matter of time before the big one hits. And you're sitting there over your lunch, and then your phone rings. And it's your doctor's office. They say they have good news, and they have bad news. Well, the bad news has been coming for a long time, so you choose the bad news. And the bad news is that your latest heart scan showed it's a virtual failure. There's irreversible damage. You're basically a time bomb waiting to go off. And you're thinking, this is no surprise. What possible good news is there? Well, the good news is that a heart just came available. You are a candidate for a transplant. In these scenarios, the bad news is somebody had to die for a transplant to become available 
so someone can live, the voice on the other end of the phone says, look, you're a match for this heart. The time frame is short. If you accept the gift, you have a chance to live a much longer, healthier life. If you don't, you'll likely be dead in a matter of weeks. So, not being able to change the past, you do what you can do. You accept the reality of the truth presented to you. You're not in denial anymore. And you can't put this off any longer. You go home, you gather your things, you go to the hospital the very next morning. As you check in, the surgeon comes to talk to you. And you're scared, but you ask the question anyway. You say, this, this heart that I'm getting, wh whose is it? And the surgeon kind of hems and haws, and he says, you know, I'm really not supposed to tell you anything about this, but it's, it's tragic, really. He said the, the heart came from a guy who was an Olympian, Olympic-level athlete. He's a runner. He's a swimmer. He's one of those guys that loves competition. He's really, he loved the outdoors. He's strong as an ox. And you're surprised. And, he's like, and, you're, and you say, well, what happened to him? And the surgeon said, well, he's in a car accident. Well, we don't have time for, for this kind of small talk. He's like, do you want the heart or not? And you take a minute and you just do a really fast check of your motives and your fears and your trust and what the surgeon is saying and the condition of the heart that you're getting. I mean, it's got to be better than the one you have, but it's different. It's somebody else's. The idea of somebody else's heart pumping in your chest is a little more than unsettling. And there's this idea of giving up control, this submission to the will of another that you're not used to at all, ever. And you come to your senses and you just say, yes, yes, I want to go through this. Yes, I want to live. But look, I can't pay for this. I don't have any insurance. I don't have any savings. I've done the research on this. This could cost one and a half million dollars. I could work for the rest of my life and never pay this off. And the surgeon says, well, that's the other piece of good news I have for you. Turns out your donor wasn't just a healthy man. He was a wealthy man. And he had it in his will that he wanted to be an organ donor. And if ever anybody used or was ever, ever any of his organs were used in a transplant situation, he wanted a portion of his estate to pay for it. The surgeon tells you, this won't cost you anything. Do you want the heart or not? Now, the flood of relief you have is incredible. The sadness you feel for this man's family is immense. Your gratitude is beyond measure. You know this is more than a second chance at living a life you've always put off. It's a kind of, it's a gift to live the kind of life that you never chose, but now you want more than anything. Several hours later, you're in recovery after a successful surgery. Several days later, you're dismissed from the hospital. And before you go, your surgeon visits you again. And he's carrying a box. He gives you a box. And inside this box are books and journals. And they all belong to the man whose heart is now pumping in your chest. All his thoughts and experiences, all of his lessons learned, stories written about morning workouts, records of miles run, uh, biked um, and swam and all the lessons that he learned on physical fitness and on proper nutrition and healthy living and good relationships and, and all it's in it's all in his own handwriting and turns out this donor has tons of online coaching resources that 
about fitness and nutrition and motivation. And the surgeon said, this is part of the deal. Not only was this a healthy man, not only was he a wealthy man, he was also wise. And the, in the event that he was an organ donor, he wanted all of these journals, all these insights, all these books to be given to the recipient. You've been given a new heart, the surgeon says. You've been given a new chance at life, but also another chance at living well. And then he asks you, will you follow the ways of the man who gave you his heart? This took you by surprise. This almost seemed like a trick, like some bait and switch. Get a heart, but lose your life? I mean, wait, get a new life, but lose a lifestyle? Not that the lifestyle you had was very healthy at all. In fact, it was downright destructive, but you're not sure this is what you signed on for. You agreed to be saved. You weren't so sure about changing your life to walk in the ways of the one who saved you, one who you barely know. This is where the analogy breaks down. This is where the story has to stop because where the man in the story lost his life in an accident, obviously Jesus voluntarily laid his life down for the sins of all humanity. I mean, while the transplant recipient was fortunate, he was also random. But Jesus died to save all people who willingly receive new life, a new heart from him. As the Old Testament prophet said, you trade out your heart of stone for a heart of flesh. This new heart, that is a new beginning, forgiveness of sins, as well as a new nature at work in you, that nature at work by the Holy Spirit, instead of a literal heart beating in the chest of every Christian, Romans 8 tells us about the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, now living and active in you and in me. And so this is where we have to ask what it means to be in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be born again or born from above? Now, Christians in our time in history, in the last hundred years or so, especially in the, in the American church, um, have had a laser focus on conversion, the process of becoming a Christian, the lost being saved. Now, in some traditions, I mean, this looks different depending on where you look. In some tradition, that amounts to a, uh, a gospel presentation. Maybe it's a tract, uh, a conversation on a park bench. Maybe it's a revival meeting. Maybe it's um, an emotional plea from the stage. It's an, it's an invitation. It's 15 verses of just as I am. And maybe it's a, it's a prayer that's prayed. And maybe even like as, as it is in our own church, this prayer followed by baptism uh, a burial and water and resurrection to new life and and sins are forgiven and we clap and we sing and we rightly proclaim that the angels above are rejoicing over one lost sinner come home. A new heart is given. The old person dies. The new life begins and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that person, that new Jesus follower. And there is therefore now no condemnation for that one who is in Christ Jesus. That person is traded in a life that was ruled by the sinful nature who has bound themselves to Christ and has a nature that is according to the Spirit. That is not just according to what the Spirit wants, but who the Spirit is. Life and peace. We became one with Christ in his death. And we take on his identity and his name and his presence. And we will receive a resurrection like his. I've heard it this way. 
salvation happens in a moment, but this being made like Jesus, a big long word that's sanctification, takes a lifetime. This is so much more than getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven when you die. This is giving up your old self that was crippled and wretched and broken and dying and being given a grace and a love that prompts obedience and action and gratitude and power and confidence and the very presence of God within your body. There's still a battle going on. We talked about that in Romans 7. There's still a battle going on in your body, in your mind as to who you will listen to. The ways of the sinful flesh or being in step with the Spirit. But now you have the power of Christ in you, the presence of Christ in you, the love of God, which will train you and discipline you. Discipline not meaning punish necessarily, but to train, giving you the strength to do the things that Christ would do if he were in this very time in your body, which he, which he is. This is what it means when Jesus says, follow me. This is what Jesus meant when he commanded, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. In Romans 8, there's a very obvious dividing line between those who walk according to the sinful nature and those who walk according to the Spirit. And it all depends on who's calling the shots, who is in charge. Whether we realize it or not, we're always serving someone. We are not our own. We are not autonomous creatures. We serve something, someone, always. The passage is clear. We either set our minds on what the sinful nature wants, and we do it, or we submit our minds and follow what God wants and God's ways, and our mind is controlled by the Spirit. We get to decide who controls us. And speaking to Christ's followers, Paul says, but you, in verse 9, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Now, I feel the tension here. I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. It sure feels like I'm controlled by the sinful nature sometimes. But listen, giving into temptation and coming back to God in repentance is not the same as being controlled by sin or forfeiting your salvation. This goes back to what I talked about last week. There's a battle going on in your mind for the control of the flesh and what it wants. And temptation can be strong and it can be long. But do these times of testing and failure result in conviction of sin and repentance and turning back to God? Or has your conscience been seared so much? Have you ignored God's word for so long? Are you, are you numb and deaf to the Spirit's warnings that you're not even aware that the sinful nature is in charge anymore? That you've given it control? As a Christian, I believe that's possible, that we can just sear our consciences to the Holy Spirit and ignore His voice so much and quench the Spirit that we give the sinful nature control. And at that point, we don't just start to drift. I believe we sometimes make conscious decisions to ignore Christ and walk away from Him. And if we do that long enough, hard enough, far enough, we're in real trouble. 
have we forgotten? Have we given so little thought to the one who bought our salvation by his very blood? Now, let's take you back to that imaginary story where you're the heart transplant patient. You're walking out of the hospital with a strong, new heart. You feel good. You've got some strength. And you're very aware, though, you're still very aware of the body that you still have, that you carried into this place, huffing and puffing. You're still very aware of the appetites that you still have, the habits that need changed. All that didn't change just because you got a new heart. You're very aware that the first thing you want to do is go to Brahms and get a triple dip chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream cone. And for the very first time in your life, something in you says, no, that's a bad idea. That's only going to get us right back to where we were. No. And it's surprising to you. Like, what, where, did this act, where did this come from? I've never said no to that before. This new nature, this new will to live, this new kind of life that the heart donor is offering you, you're saying yes to it. All these things that you've been given, the tools and the resources to live the kind of life that you always wanted, if you will indeed walk in these ways, what will you do? Well, scenario one is that you get home with that box of books, journals, and other information that you've been given on all that online coaching and all that, all the resources, and you promptly put it on the shelf. You just put it away. You're thankful for the heart. You're glad for this time on the earth. You know, you're, you're a few more years, perhaps. You genuinely feel better. The pain in your chest is pretty well gone. But you have little interest into getting into that material or making any real changes in your lifestyle or your diet or your level of exercise or losing weight, there's really no outer evidence of the inner change that's happened to you. Or scenario two is this, where you get home with that box of wisdom and instruction and you have a come to Jesus meeting with yourself and you conclude that your new heart, that sacrifice and the forethought that went into that gift has brought about a change in your thinking and a change in your attitude, and a change in your resolve. And you begin by making an appointment to meet the family of the one who donated the heart to you. You want to thank them. And you want to ask them for help, any help at all, to put into practice the truths and the practices, the disciplines found in the, in the material that you were given. You don't understand it all. You've never done this stuff before. You've never lived this way. You need help and direction and accountability to make sure you're following in the ways of the one who gave you his heart. And then after that meeting, you go back to your house and you go to your kitchen and you look around and you clean it up and you take out all of the junk food and you take out all of the empty calories and you just throw them in the dumpster. You pour stuff down the sink, you go in the garbage disposal, you throw stuff in the trash, you take it to the curb. And the very next morning, you go to the local YMCA, or you go to the CrossFit, or you go to the gym, and you pay for a membership complete with coaching. And you know, you know, there's nothing you can do to pay back the gift you've been given. But you can show gratitude and honor 
to the one who saved you by your actions, by your follow-through. And sure, sometimes you slip back into your old ways. Sometimes life just gets hard and you get tired and you go and you eat a, and you eat a whole box of Twinkies, okay? But after being away from that kind of food for a while and you indulge like that, he, you just feel sick. You feel tired and sluggish and you're like, man, what did I ever do? How did I ever eat that stuff before? That's so gross. That kind of food has lost its appeal because you've given your control of your appetite to better, more life-giving foods. It is not hard to see the, the parallel here that I'm drawing. You, you, can, you can know exactly where I'm going with this. To Christ giving himself in our response to him, not only for our forgiveness and eternal home, but for daily life driven and fed by his presence and his power. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is now at, alive in you and in me. You're no longer controlled by the flesh, that is the sinful nature. Now in your weakness, we allow it more room than we ought to give it. But our consistent concentration on the love of God, obedience to Jesus, having the mind of the Spirit, thankful for His grace and His strength, out of an outpouring of love and gratitude, we say yes to the Spirit. And in the process, we think and we act more like our Savior and Lord. The old adage about the guy with two dogs that fought all the time. And his friend said, well, which dog tends to win? And he goes, the well, one I feed the most wins. The nature we feed the most will win the battle. When temptation comes, the nature we feed the most will win. So I'm guessing that I'm just asking all of us to take inventory just a little bit here. What nature consistently has control of your life most every day? If you're that heart transplant patient, which scenario have you lived out? How have you treated the one who saved your life? See, this isn't about going through some religious motions or saying the right words and then living life how you want, thinking your eternal ticket has been punched. That's American Christianity. That's cheap grace. The gospel is about saying yes to a brand new life by faith that prompts effort, obedience fueled by love and a supernatural presence in your own life that slowly but surely transforms you to be a different person, more like Jesus. Something you could never do on your own, by your own willpower, by your own strength. So find out where the junk food is and get rid of it. Find out, where, find out where the gym is, where the workout room is, where the exercise equipment is, whether that's your daily time in Bible and prayer, whether that's being involved in a church or a small group or a ministry. Surround yourself with people who will coach you. I mean, discipline as in disciple you. Provide you that direction, that personal relationship and accountability to say, I, I need to live more like Jesus Help me do this. I need to understand what this means. Please explain it to me. I've messed up big time. I need to confess my sin.
So clean house, put feet on the faith we say we have, and don't leave that box sit up on a shelf and wait for the next heart attack to hit. Let me pray. God, you've always reminded me that the more we can remind each other who we are in Christ, the less we will have to tell each other what not to do. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith, the finisher of our faith. And he was joyful in obedience and even suffered. Help us to be willing to follow in his steps and to live transformed lives. In Jesus' name, amen.